one of our favorite moments in a day when our kids were young was to uh, take a pile of books and uh, do read-alouds uh, before our girls would go to bed. Sit there on the bed and read and talk. And as they got older, we decided we wanted to just keep it going. It wasn't just picture books. It became chapter books and then really remarkable chapter books. And then came the Chronicles of Narnia. This wonderful story that C.S. Lewis tells, it is a picture of the gospel and a picture of the challenges that are part of it. And there's an episode in the Chronicles of Narnia, the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Edmund, Edmund who because of his jealousy and pride gets everything wrong, goes sideways in his life and finds himself about to be killed by the witch and her entourage. He was in a life he was in life-ending trouble, or nearly so, and uh, in the last minute, he is saved by Aslan's compassion. Aslan comes sweeping in and protects Edmund from the wicked witch, only to have the witch return, show up again with Aslan, asking for safe conduct into the presence of Aslan himself to remind Aslan of Aslan's obligation to abide by the ancient rules of deep magic. She appealed to the way things must be and said to Aslan, you must not contradict those things. Edmund could not be protected by Aslan. The witch knew that Aslan knew it. It could not be allowed. In fact, the witch said this, he knows the deep magic. He knows that unless I have his life, all Narnia will be overturned and perished. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear. Can't we, I, I, I mean, you won't, will you? Can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face. And nobody ever made that suggestion again. You see, as much as Aslan loved Edmund, love is not something easily accomplished for a person of holiness and righteousness and justice. We throw the word love around as if it's some mushy, mushy sentimentality and fail to realize the profound challenge of a person who is holy being a person who is loving. You see, if the God of the universe chooses to be loving, in that choice, the witch would contend he must violate every principle of order and morality. Will you sacrifice order and justice and holiness to be loving? And the witch pointed out to the lion that that is an impossibility. If one chooses to be holy, then one must surrender their desire to love. Because holiness is a demand for justice to roll down. You see, Aslan wanted to rescue Edmund, to act on his love 
before Edmund, but the witch pointed out to Aslan himself, it is not easy as you imagined to violate every principle that would then turn the whole of Narnia, the whole of the world, upside down. C.S. Lewis is letting us know the character of love, the real character of love. And so when we come to this part in Advent, where we're reminded of God's love, that God is love, and we see over and over again in Scripture, it's helpful for us to understand that love is complicated. There's actually a surprise in Luke chapter 1 that we might not initially see, but Zechariah describes God in a startling way. It's right there in verse 78. And if you write notes in your Bible, I would encourage you, if there's any phrase you highlight, it must be this one. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. There's a tenderness that characterizes God in this description of who he is. But it also, at the end of the phrase, says God. And the reference to God here is God, the mighty one, the almighty one, the holy and righteous one. And we see tenderness and holiness side by side. And to any ancient eye, and even to many religious people today, that would seem to be absolutely impossible. Compassion and holiness used to describe the same person is stunning, really. It's a little bit like putting these two words together, Adele and Pitchy, or Trump and Humble. Now, that wasn't a political statement. He said it himself, right? But you just say, you know, those two things don't go together, or Putin and Pushover. You see that? But, but God is described as tender. And it is as surprising because it just seems like it's an impossibility. Those two things cannot coexist. Love and justice are incompatible traits on their own. They're incompatible traits. For God, it presents a dilemma because God claims both of those things. That is why so many people look at Christianity and object to it and throw it out. As, as people who follow the Lord, we, 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 we declare and we, we know that God is a God of holiness and justice and righteousness. We understand that. We even understand what it means. We, we have illustrations even in our world. I was in court uh, with someone just a, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. And the judge comes in. And it's all business. This person had an advocate with them that uh, doesn't really care if the person is innocent or guilty or not. He's, he's an advocate for the person. And then there's the judge. And the role of a judge isn't to be an advocate. The role of a judge isn't to be compassionate. The role of a judge is to be fair and to be patient and to be considerate of any problems that would get in the way of a person completely understanding what would happen. And that's what that judge was doing. In fact, the court hearing was actually postponed because the judge wanted to be fair. But a judge will consider the merit of the case, will consider the laws that pertain, and will call for justice to be done. Beyond that, one would say, if you choose compassion, you're not a judge anymore. You see, it must be the trait. One person gets to be the judge, and law and truth 
absolutely matter or he is not a judge. And then there's another person who gets to be the advocate. And whether innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter. They are there to care for that person. You see, that's the conundrum that's a part of this. And it's why there are so many faiths and religions that look at Christianity and say, you can't have it both ways. You look at other faiths in our society, and you see them based on a moral code and perhaps a sacrificial system. Something has to be done. Restitution has to enter into this. Or you hear about five pillars and a, a choice to give your life away because because it must be so. God is a God of holiness and, and he must be surrendered to and one must be devout. It's hard to fit love in without God becoming soft. And that seems so incongruent with God being holy. I had an opportunity with my wife to be part of a um, uh, group of university students who went over to Europe a number of years now ago and we went to Copenhagen and there were a number of refugees that had come to Copenhagen from the Middle East and Denmark was doing a great job of just trying to do whatever they could to care for them and in the middle of this there were a number of Christians who wanted to let those people those immigrants understand the character of the gospel and so there was actually a debate that took place and we were there for it, and there were hundreds of people from the Middle East that crowded into this room, and there was a Danish professor, brilliant, engaging, clever, funny Dane, who was Muslim. And he created the case, described the case for Islam. And then there was a Syrian-born gentleman named Shokat Mukri, who was Christian. And he was going to describe the case for the place of Christ, the Savior of the world. And the Danes stood up and talked all about the holiness and the righteousness of God. And he was absolutely engaging. And it was brilliant. And it made so much sense. In Western eyes, it was particularly enjoyable and captivating. And then Shokut gets up there. And he says, slowly, without any engagement other than the words. And he said, I want you to know that God is a God of love. He's a God of love. He's a God of love. I was sitting there listening to this debate, and I thought, oh, this is going to be just an absolute disaster. He's not engaging in the debate at all. But he said, I want you to know that God is a God of love. And do you know what? After that was over with, a crowd of people from the Middle East gathered around Shokat and said, could it possibly be true? Is it possible that it could be true. You see, because they, they have a legitimate objection. Because God, God cannot be compromised. If he is holy, then he must be just and cannot be soft. If he is loving, then he's soft and cannot be strong. And yet there it is, right there in Luke chapter 1, we are told that God is both. How can it possibly be? There is only one way. And the word sticks out over and over again in Luke chapter 1. It's the word mercy. It's the tender mercy 
of our mighty God. You see, when mercy steps in, it's possible for love and justice to coexist. The word mercy is the word that means one is not punishment. One is not punished when punishment is deserved. And you see mercy, it's in 78. You go back, it's in verse 50. It's in verse 54. It's in verse 58. It's in verse 72. And that's only when mercy is named. There are descriptions all over. Read all of Luke chapter 1. And you'll see mercy, 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 mercy. No one getting what is deserved. What they expect to receive as punishment. Because mercy is about punishment that is not given to the person who deserves it. And God solves that problem by being punished for us. Jesus was sent to earth so that what we deserve could be taken instead by Christ. And you know where Shokat Mukri ended up pointing these primarily Middle Eastern men that were in the midst of that debate, he pulled out the scriptures because they had said this. You know, your scriptures in the New Testament talk about a God of love, but the scriptures that we're more guided by, the Old Testament scriptures, speak of a God of justice and holiness. And he actually pulled out Isaiah 53 and read these words, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And you know what? These these, uh, people said, can I have that in my language? Because they had never noticed that that it was in God's word. That God actually could be love and justice. Because of Jesus Christ. He could be love and he could be holiness because he chooses mercy. The savior of everyone, Mary says. Even myself. Even myself, the devout one. He is my savior. You see, here it is. Love and justice are incompatible choices only if mercy does not show up. The coming of Christ to earth, the son of God, who is God himself, must have actually occurred or divine love is not possible. Oh, a squishy kind of a sentimentality might be possible, but divine love is not if God is a God of righteousness and power. And so we celebrate the Christmas story, a story that Jesus is born, that God has come earth, that Jesus lived a life, a life that was sinless and miraculous and compassionate, and that Jesus went to the cross to die of his own free will. He said this, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life and then Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead lest one wonder if he compromised his might to show his love oh he didn't lose his might he conquers death itself 
And then the scriptures say, Jesus will come again to judge the world, showing compassion to those who choose it and justice for those who don't. You see, this cannot just simply be a story that we tell our kids in Sunday school class. It must be true. It must be true. And that's a conversation we can have later and talk about the scholarship and the research and the evidence for all of it. But I say to you this morning, it must be true or God's love is not possible. There's only one means by which the God of the universe can be both holy and gracious. And it is mercy. And so, C.S. Lewis points out to us in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that the one who ends up on Table Rock slain is not Edmund, but it is Aslan instead. You know, there's a remarkable picture. I'm not sure exactly where it is in The Lord of the Rings, but a contemporary to C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, uh, told stories and used them as illustrations of the character of the world and human condition and the need for God and his love. And in The Lord of the Rings, I'm pretty sure there's a place where Gandalf takes a sword in the midst of all of the strife and conflict and the, and the world going crazy and being devastated. Gandalf takes his sword and he pierces it into the ground and it, it, it ripples out and everything is changed by it. And we even see that ripple here in the words of Zechariah who says that all of those in the past have their lives and their destinies rewritten because God is a God of love and all of those in the future. It's as if you take a sword and you pierce it into the ground. And from this point forward, everything is changed. Jesus came. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Mercy comes to earth. And the God who is a God of holy righteousness can also be a God of absolute love. You see, love is complicated, but it is also glorious. It is also glorious. So what does that mean? Mercy is not love. It is simply the offer of love. To you and to me. Go to Luke chapter 2, and you see in it, the angels singing this song, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. How do I get his favor? How in my life can I have the manifestation of love like that? To actually let his favor come to me. Well, the angel says it. It happens for any of those who choose to let his favor rest in their life. 
that just do this. I want it. I want my life to be a resting place for your favor. You see, it's a choice that we might make, that we must make. Love is possible for God because of his mercy, and love is possible for you because of your invitation. Love is possible for me because of my invitation. Come, Lord, reside in my life. And God will say, now you will know my love. Because I can be a God of love and a God of holiness as well. God comes to earth. He also wants to enter into our life. He can because the witch no longer has a voice. All legal issues have been resolved because he loves us. He comes as king, as ruler, as one to surrender to, but he comes as father with gentleness and care and compassion, all because he came as a humble manger-born child. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on those to whom his favor rests. You see, I discovered as a young man that God was a God of love. But I had to decide whether I wanted his love to be for me, his favor to rest in my life. And a decision was necessary for that. Christmas is a celebration of God's choice to visit us. It is a celebration of his glory and his grace. It is an awareness of the unique character of God's might and his mercy. It is also an invitation to experience his love. Love means nearness. It's a relationship. To be a Christian isn't a designation, but a relationship. And so we come to this point every year, and in this moment there is either gratitude or challenge. We either come into Christmas with gratitude for his love, perhaps the dimensions of which we never really understood as profoundly as we understand now. And we say, thank you, God, for your mercy that allows me to depend on your love. And Christmas is a season of incredible gratitude. It is also a season of challenge. For those of us who were like me as a young man and realized I either follow and let his love enter into my life or I continue to live my life on my own in much the same way Edmund made his choices. So here's what I want you to do as you reflect on this season and prepare to enter into it. I want you to think about what the calling God has on your life this year, this Christmas season. Is it a calling to be characterized by gratitude or to consider the challenge that God says to all of us, give your life to me and let my favor rest on you. To absolutely surrender your life to him and decide that your life belongs to him. 
So in front of you, in the seat pockets, there's actually a little card that has a prayer request on it. And not everyone here will do this, but I want to encourage some of you to say, you know, I feel compelled to pray. And there's a place for prayer. There's a card that says connect on one side, and it says prayer on the other. And I want to just pull this out. I know it's not what we always use it for, but you can use it for this morning. And while we gather together and sing about God's love as we conclude this service, I would invite you to write a prayer of thanksgiving or invitation. No one has to see it. You can take it with you. You can put it in the baskets in the back if you like to let us celebrate with you what you're thankful for and grateful for and what God has done in your life over years and years and years. years. Or we can pray for you as you surrender to God for the first time in your life and say, I want his favor to rest in my life. So write a prayer. God, I want you to know my gratitude. For God, I want to give you my life. And walk out of here celebrating Christmas in the way it was intended to celebrate. Daniel and his team are going to lead us in a song. And while he's doing so, I would encourage you to respond, either vocally or prayerfully or writing something as a message to the Lord. God, thank you for your love to us. Thank you for your mercy that makes it possible. And thank you above all that we can still sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We give thanks for your love. Amen.